Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a subscriber of the show to help keep it on the air and keep it going. Please partner with me and with my podcast team to make sure that this stays available to all the people out there who just enjoy it or who benefit from it. And uh, for all the people who tell me that it's their weekly therapy, again, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a subscriber for any amount you can. Thank you so very much. And today we have part two of my conversation with Rachel and Aaron Alder. And when I asked Aaron and Rachel to send me an introductory paragraph or two about themselves, I received something from Rachel and she's speaking on both of their behalf. So I want to be able to read it to you by way of an introduction. My name is Rachel Alder, and I am a mom, a wife to Aaron, a sister, a daughter. I work providing case management services to older adults in the community, and my wife works in marketing technology. I am originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and have lived in the Seattle area since 2010. And my wife has lived in this area for over 20 years. And since I was young, I have always felt a passion inside me to stand up for those who can't for themselves. From 2012 to 2019, shortly after Aaron and I met, we found ourselves in a situation within AA where our vulnerabilities were being used to control our behavior. I didn't think that could be something that would happen to me. I am educated, including a degree in psychology. I have a strong family support system. I've lived all over the country and experienced many different situations and people. It didn't occur to me that this could or would be something I could fall victim to, but nevertheless, I did. Aaron did. And we stayed in it for seven very long years. So we are recording these episodes to ensure that others who come across this podcast know that this can and does happen to anyone, and there should not be shame around it and that there is another way to live that doesn't involve being controlled by one or two human beings or even an organization. Personally, my biggest vulnerability that was exploited was undiagnosed obsessive-compulsive disorder. This disorder created near-constant thoughts inside me that I would cause harm to the people I loved and cared about the most. It tortured me for 12 of 13 years of my sobriety. And Aaron's biggest vulnerability became whether leaving this group or leaving these people meant leaving our marriage. When we left the group and the sponsor you will hear about on this podcast, and eventually for us, AA, our marriage began to truly take shape. I also was finally able to get the treatment I needed. This help has literally changed my entire life. For people who have been in AA a long time and or are still attending, this isn't meant to be an attack on AA. It is our personal experience and the experience of many others. If AA is working well for you, wonderful. And if not, 
then there are other ways to move forward in life. AA says this as well. Thanks for listening to our story. Here's the second episode with Rachel and Aaron Alder. So now getting back on track. So I know we're kind of doing a chronology and which is a good thing to do. So here I'm wondering at what point, like thinking back, some of the things that were really egregious and also at what point you decided, you know, we need to make a change. Such a big question. So just for context, we, at the beginning, right, Aaron and I said, we've been married seven years. We were in this seven years together. And so, um, so we've been together nine. So I'll share the first time I had a flicker of something isn't right here. Um, and then I can guess what Aaron will share is her first time as a flicker. My first flicker, unfortunately, um, took me a little longer than Aaron, um, was probably about two years in, maybe a little bit less than that. There were a couple other flickers before that, but I, I didn't, I just couldn't. This was the first real thing that I was like, what am I part of? And so I don't even know what happened, but some sort of interaction between Tracy and I occurred. And I remember going to bed at, at that night with, with Aaron and it was either laying in bed that night or waking up the next morning. And I just had this strong thought, and this is a, a strong one. So, and I, I, I don't want to like insult anyone else's experience by sharing this. Um, but these violent groups that control people like ISIS, that was my thought. I was like, oh my gosh, like I understand how people get into ISIS. Like it was such a weird thing to come into my mind. Um, that would have been in like 2015, I don't know. Um, it was before we were married though. Uh, and I was like, it's just like this slow little process where they like of grooming and just kind of let's push the button here and we do this here and here and here. And then all of a sudden you're at this place where you're harming people uh, that you care about or that you're doing things that are against your values. And so I remember like when I had that thought, I stewed on it for a bit. And then I just told myself what Tracy had always told us to tell ourselves was, if it's negative, it's a lie. If it's negative, it's a lie. If it's negative, it's a lie. And so I would just say that to myself on, on repeat, especially when I was doubting things or I'm seeing it wrong or that. And so that was the first time for me. I would say it was about a year and a half in though. What are you going to say? I want to see oh, if I'm gosh, right. There's so many, <laughs> there's so many places. I think, um, one of the, the first memories that I, that was, it was such a struggle for me was, um, when I was, uh, I was doing my fifth step. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and when you do your fifth step, you know, you go through this process and you write all these things out and it's, it's really just unveiling your life for the most part. And then you sit down with her and you go through it. And, and there's a lot of different ways to do a fifth step and very early on in my fifth step. And, um, just to give it a light sense, like one of the processes you go through your pages where you've written down people's names and some of the 
things you, not even things you don't like about them, things even that just bug you about them. And you go through, so you've written all these things down, um, resentments that you have towards people. And there's names at the top of the page. And we were about 10 minutes into this, you know, two, three, four, it was a long process. And I had the name Tracy written at the top of one of my pages. It wasn't her. And so as I'm sharing this with her, when I think back to it, it's funny because I think, why would somebody do that and blatantly go, here's you and here's all the things that bug me about you kind of thing. So here I am sharing with her, you know, reading it to her basically and not thinking anything of that because I'm sharing, it was, you know, other people that were in my life or whatever. And I, I just sensed that something shifted and get granted, we were like together for three or four hours and the rest of it, she just kind of rushed through and, and brushed past. And it was, I just could tell something I don't know what just happened, but something just happened. And I ended up leaving and I got the cold shoulder for a little while. And it was this weird sense of, I couldn't, I, I had no idea what was going on, what I had done. And it was, I don't know, a week or so later that uh, we did a car meeting. She laid into me and was I feel it. It was like, you don't get it. You don't know what, how much you disrespected me. And I was, and I was sitting there going, I don't know what you're talking about. And she said, I gave up my whole day for you and sat with you. And how dare you call me out and say that the sound of my voice bothers you or all the things that I had written down on this page and the sinking feeling in my, I mean, when somebody's calling you out for something that you didn't do, that wasn't, it, it was not true. And she's laying into me about how dare I, and she's given so much to me. She, you know, and then adds her family into it. She kicked her family out of the house that day so that we could spend this time, blah, blah, blah. And I'm sitting there going, that wasn't you. I have other Tracy's in my life. Like, and, and I thought I could just simply say like, that wasn't you. And it wasn't, she did not believe me. Absolutely. 100% did not believe me. And she let me have it that day. And I was crying and vulnerable and like, I would never hurt you. And I, I, you know, nothing. She just, and after that, it was almost like I had to prove myself to get back in. She never, we, never kind of circled around back on that, that, um, it was always something that was held over my head. And that was probably the first point that I was thinking, hell, like that, 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 that doesn't make sense. Like that doesn't make sense. And the way that it was hung over me and held over me when I was like, here I am, I put all this work into it. And that's what happened. And the problem with these types, so these were things that occurred all the time. And the the trouble is like, I guess, you know, there's different ways that people are gonna probably hear what we're what we're saying. Um, but when you put it on the backdrop of we are not allowed to uh criticize, fault find, defend, complain, and uh a person is is being accused of doing something they didn't do. But at the same time, they're told that their their spiritual life and eventually the rest of their life 
will fall apart if they defend themselves or if they say, no, actually, it was just a mistake. It wasn't actually about you. And then what happens is that is flipped again uh, to say, well, you're just not seeing it right. There's a bigger picture here of why we're having this conversation. And so it's almost like, okay, even if you didn't mean it was me, we still have to go through this because there's a bigger story. There's a bigger picture that you're going to hear about how you treat people and how you, and it just, everything gets kind of like, and it gets like so heady and it's all dependent on like you your family yeah. is like going to fall apart if you don't do it. It's like, how did I even believe that? But it's like, it's just this slow roll. Yeah, it is. It is slow. It does. I mean, if she had introduced you to all of this during the first meeting, you would have said, yeah, bye-bye. But I think, you know, I'm getting this feeling as you're talking, I'm, get, I'm getting this feeling of quicksand. That the more you struggle to get out, the more you sink down, like she would dig a hole for you, basically. You fall into it, trying to get out. You might say something or do something or use a certain tone or whatever. And then it would be another hole and you go deeper and you're just constantly getting out of that. I mean, you know, sometimes people will ask, why did you stay? You know, it's like being in a relationship with a controller. Why did you stay? And I mean, I want to hear from you about that, but I think so, so much of it is I'm digging myself out of the 17th hole. Like I just, I need to just get back to ground, like ground level. And I have, I'm not, it's going to take a long time. And I keep some, somehow losing standing and losing and sinking deeper. And you can get onto that hamster wheel that just feels perpetual. And, and often there's a fear associated with just climbing off the hamster wheel because of what's going to happen to you if you don't go to the meetings. I mean, is that, is that what was hung over your heads? Yeah, there was very much that essence of a fear. And I, I was the first one that broke away, I would say. Um, and when I started to, things were off and mind you, we were going to a 6 a.m. meeting every day and driving 30 miles to get there. So 15 miles each 15 way. 15 miles each way, but and 30 minutes basically. And, you know, um, we were making this long drive. And after a while, I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like I need to do something different. There were lots of things involved, but when I tried to, you know, that getting like, I'm going to try another meeting. It wasn't even like, I'm going to stop coming to this one every day or stop coming ever. It was I'm going to try and go to some other meetings every once in a while. And it was very shunned upon. In the very, very beginning of starting this whole group, the, we did five, it was five days a week. You went Monday through Friday to this meeting. Mm -hmm. And then there was like this kind of like loose expectation that you were going on the weekends, but nobody really talked about it in the sponsorship lines. So and nobody knew if anybody else was really going. And then at some point there was a shift um, to seven days a week at wake up, no matter what. And so that's when th things started to crumble for me too, is, okay, so how was I spiritually well off of five days a week at wake up? But now the only way to be spiritually well is to be seven days a week at wake up. 
And what about the other 7 billion people that exist in the world that are not going to wake up seven days a week? Are they all spiritually unwell? And that ate at me for years. And it was part of the many things that would, would make it crumble. When you're struggling with these ideas, it is because it doesn't make sense but you've been taught that you can't question it. And if you do, there's something wrong with you. So then you just have this conversation with yourself ad nauseum. So that becomes its own, I think, form of torture after a while. So there were probably a lot of things, which is how it is actually when you're in a relationship, even with someone who is a controller or abusive in their way, and whatever you do, you're doing it the wrong way. If you say something this way, it means something bad about you and whatever else. You end up having a lot of conversations with yourself in your head. And so the dialogue just continues all the time. Now I'm thinking of the freedom you have to actually say things out loud and how, how nice that must be finally to be able to do that. It took a little learning, though, for us to figure out how to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it felt like we went through yeah. seven years of our marriage of not talking. I mean, very surface level. We have, we've always had a great marriage, yeah. but it was always through that process. It was very surface level. And there was always all of this underlying turmoil and, you know, that you could just feel the, the, the push and pull of somebody else was controlling our relationship because the moment that I stopped, if I was not sponsoring or not following the guidelines, Rachel would hear about it. And then I could feel her trying to bring me back in and feel, and it was almost like she would pull away. And so you're right. It left me always in this space of, um, and I think from earlier of, am I going to lose Rachel? Am I going to lose my marriage? Or am I going to be just have to stay, you know, am I going to stay stuck in this? Like, what the hell is happening? That's why I always felt, I felt like I was crazy Yep. and I knew yep. I wasn't crazy, but I, it, it would get me to the place where I just felt insane because of not being able to talk about it, not being able to talk to Rachel, watching the insanity of your commitment and thinking I'm now I'm not committed. And then being told that like I'm off track or it, it was just this, it, it consumed everything about us. It pushed our families away because we couldn't have conversations with them. It pushed friendships away because you felt like you couldn't talk to people and have community. You just lost. I, I felt like I lost who I was as a person. Yeah. I describe it as feeling like two people, the person that I was being molded to be right. And then the person that I felt intuitively that I was, and those did not seem to match. And so I thought that intuitive person was this bad person that I had to like weed out of my, of my life and that I could be molded into this, you know, other better person. So there were, for us, there were a total of three attempts to leave. The third was the successful one, which happened in November of 2019. But when we moved to Kent, we tried to leave then and uh, I eventually got pulled back in and then pulled Aaron back in. The other time we tried to leave was my family's in, in Nashville. My sister's in Nashville. Tracy sponsored my sister from a distance all by phone. Um, and it was during a trip to Nashville. We would go there. We tried to go there like in the summer once a year. Um, 
that the three of us started talking, the reason we stayed so long is because of me. Like I am fully aware of that. And because of the immense pressure I felt to stay and the true belief that like everything would fall apart if I left. But I want to share someone else's story just for a moment, because what's didn't happen to us, but happened to many people in this specific sponsorship line. And unfortunately does happen in AA, I think more than people are willing to talk about is this idea that taking medications, especially for mental health disorders is bad. And Tracy rides that train real hard and she wants people to stop taking medications so that they can hear her better. And after, after leaving, I had this epiphany that she's right. They can hear her better because what she hears is darkness. And I don't, and I don't know what she hears, but it, it can't be comfortable for her. Like it can't be if you're treating so many people this way. And so uh, asking people to stop taking their, their mental health medications, especially it does, it breaks people down to a, a, shell, of a shell of a person and they're more easily molded or vulnerable, you know? So, so she's right. Um, in that sense, it's wrong, but she is right. You know, we have lots of stories now documented where people had this experience in writing. And one of our friends in particular was in a, a domestic violence relationship, was essentially told with all those, those nevers, those words to not talk about it, to try to stay in the marriage, to keep it going. Um, and, uh, she ended up stopping all her or being told to stop her meds, stop therapy. And so she took 300 of her pills. I don't know if it was a mix or all one kind and tried to kill herself. And she ended up in a coma. When she woke up from her coma, she woke up with Tracy at her bedside. And then Dominique, who is like Tracy's right-hand woman and was technically this woman's sponsor, but you're in a line, right? So Tracy's at the head of the line. And then you've got these other people that are in like these leadership positions. I would have been what considered one of those people, but you're right behind Tracy and Dominique definitely was and, and, and has been. Um, and so she sponsored this woman that tried to take her life. When she woke up from the coma with them sitting at her bedside, they looked at a paper list of her medications and went through them and told her which ones she should not take. And so that's like the, the worst of like that kind of sliver of, of uh, this line. Um, but the practices that, that are taught and the pressure, the pressure to fall in line is so intense that it brings many people to suicidal ideation, suicidal planning. We also have that documented in writing from people, my sister included. And then like with my sister, I'm essentially told not to believe uh, that she will do that, even though she's been researching ways to take her own life and has shared that with me. And I was like cold with her about it. Um, because I was made to believe that she was just doing that for attention and she needed to work things out on her own. Those are some of the really impactful stories. So it's not just that there's like not good blood here between us and this person, right? It's that there's a process of manipulation, brainwashing, mind control, completely degrading 
a human being in the ways that are specifically the most harmful to them, like knowing what their buttons are and pushing them to see how far you can you can take them. And um, and that's what I, I, I feel like was done to us. And so our our most impactful story is uh, related to one of our two. We have two kids together, um, one which is no longer living. And then we have a, a little guy, our son Hatcher, that is going to be two in June. And he is hilarious. That to me is like one of our most important stories. I would love to hear it. I think it's, you know, I think for you to be open to sharing it is that it, it's, taking from your pain, but sort of offering a gift to other people. So they really get a sense of how dangerous they can, we can be, how hurtful. Um, okay. But anyway, so go ahead. Rachel and I had um, started the process, decided that we wanted to have children together. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two grown children and Rachel would be the carrier. And so we started that process of trying to get pregnant, which is it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, it's not as easy as I wish it was. Yeah, not for two women. Not for two women. <laughs> or it's cheap. Yeah. And, you know, I think for both of us, because partially because of the commitment and the process, you know, that we ran, it was like, this was something that we knew we could, we wanted to do together. And um, we went on that journey. And when we ended up getting pregnant with our daughter, Beatrice, it was uh, at our 20 week appointment that we were told and discovered through ultrasound that she had a lot of fetal anomalies um, that it was going to be dealing with. Um, There was, there was quite the list, which was, I mean, just the idea of going through that for anybody was, it's, it's just not something you ever to happen. We were told in that appointment that it would basically be a miracle if she lived to one, to one years old. And also in that appointment too, it was, you know, just very heavy in that we were almost told it's time to make a decision. Do you mm-hmm. want to continue on with this or do you want to terminate? And um, so a lot of just heavy things around that, making those decisions. And we ultimately decided to make the decision that we were going to give her every opportunity that we could and, you know, uh, keep moving and just believe the good and believe that, you know, miracles happen. And um, that's also what we were taught to do. Yeah. Just believe the good. You don't believe the negative. It's a lie. And we continued on through that pregnancy all the way through it every day, 6 a.m. meetings, regardless how pregnant she is, how tired she is, not getting sleep, you know, like that, we kept that commitment up. At that point, we were not just doing our part of being, you know, AA members with our sponsor, we were heavily sponsoring. Just to add to what Aaron said about going to a meeting every day when I was pregnant with a little girl that was, you know, not going to make it, is I feel like any reasonable human being that would hear this would say, you should, you know, sleep a little later than 4.30 in the morning. Uh, maybe you should take a couple days off. Maybe you should dial back some of your responsibilities during this time. But really, it was almost expected in some ways to do the opposite of like, throw yourself more into if you were struggling with something because and she never used this word, but it's the best way I can make it like understandable for everyone is then you'd kind of be more enlightened. But I never, not one time ever told a doctor 
or the midwife or a nurse or a social worker or anyone that I was keeping that rigorous schedule because I knew that they would tell me to stop. I was hospitalized with contractions when we were supposed to have a 4.45 a.m. business meeting. So we would meet before the meeting for a business meeting. That would start at 4.45 in the morning. Um, but I had contractions that night because I was super stressed out about the meeting because there's a lot of stuff going on in our group where the group was splitting into because of the insanity of our sponsorship line specifically. And that group did end up splitting into. But I then got in trouble later because I wasn't there at that business meeting to defend my sponsor um, when essentially like everyone was calling her a bully. And that's like the gentlest turn. And I, because I was hospitalized. Crazy. Yeah, go ahead. We, you know, continued on through this process and um, it was, uh, they set a date that um, they were going to do the C-section. Um, so we had, you know, we knew when that was going to happen, she was going to be uh, delivered at 36 weeks. Um, and it was just what we were going through in that process from when we found out until she was born and decisions we had to make and communication that we had to have. I mean, we had, we were with the best specialists at the doctor and, you know, literally deciding with specialists because they'd never done a delivery with a child like her before of how they were going to deliver her. And, and there was, there were so many miracles that happened yes. through that process that yes. so many good things that came out of that. Um, you know, as we got up to the, you know, her delivery date, we had decided we were going to, you know, go to the zoo the day before we were supposed to have our delivery date just to be together and spend the day. And, you know, and, and I think that's another thing is throughout Rachel's pregnancy with B, not knowing if, if she was going to, not knowing how long she was going to make it is we did a lot of things with her while Rachel was pregnant with her. So went places and, and visited and did things. And one of the last things we did was that we wanted to take her to the zoo when we went to the zoo that day. I don't remember how it went, but basically um, Tracy and Tracy said that I don't even know if they were invited. I don't remember this. Sure we invited I'm them. sure we invited them, but they ended up coming with us that, that day. So Tracy our, and her husband. Our sponsor and, and her husband. And they spent the day with us at the zoo, which, you know, you don't really think anything of. It was nice of them to do that. And their daughter, it was also in labor as well. But they didn't know that. But they didn't know that. They she didn't, hadn't told them that she yeah, had gone They didn't know that, but they spent the day with us at the zoo and so the next day, um, you know, it was delivery day. We went to the hospital and she was successfully, I would say she was uh, delivered via C-section and I got to go into the next room where they uh, attempted to intubate her and they finally got her intubated. Rachel was recovering, um, you know, from the C-section and got to come in and see her for a moment and then was, was wheeled off and, um, Again, just decision after decision. What did we want to do? She was intubated. Do we want to send her to children's? Just all of the things that were taking place at this time. My family was there. My parents were there. Rachel's mom and sister were there. And we got to have 36 hours with her. Yeah. So she was delivered. I'm recovering. You know, all we had been doing for months at that point was making really hard decisions. And so, um, 
even like the last appointment before her delivery, the doctor said, you know, because of all her health conditions, you can terminate the, do you want to terminate the pregnancy like nine months in? Quickly, we have to decide if she's going to stay with us in the hospital because her life is probably not going to be very long. They were trying to say that as gently as possible. Or does she go to Seattle Children's because her life maybe could be longer? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, how do you make that decision? If she leaves the hospital where I am, I can't leave because I'm recovering from a C-section. Um, so, but we decided all this time, we have always been choosing what we hoped would be best for her. Um, and so she got transported to Children's. Erin went by the amazing, wonderful doctors where I was. They were able to discharge me less than 24 hours in the hospital. So I, I get to go over to um, Children's, which is only a couple miles from where I was at UW. And, you know, I'm in a wheelchair and all, all this insanity. And she's on, you know, all these machines and it just is not looking good. Uh, anyways, we have family there. We have Aaron's best friend who we also at some point wrangled to be in the sponsorship line later on. And then she wanted left. And um, so there's, it's, we get told she's going to die. Um, and have some choices around how to spend those final moments, you know, or final even hours, couple of hours with her. Um, the hospital was amazing, did all of these things to make the experience wonderful, got a photographer in there, a bunch of them picked up a couch and brought it into the room. I mean, it was, it was just incredible. So we're having, this is what we're doing, you know, we're, we're our daughter's dying and we're being with her. And we're getting to hold her while she's on machines. And then we're getting to hold her when she's not on machines. And we get to hold her when she takes her last breath. And that's, that's what we are, are doing. And so um, she dies a little after 11 at night. Um, and um, Tracy was, like, I called my sister first that next morning. Or Kate might have called me and said, you know, can we come to the hospital? It was still really, really early. Um, and I said, you know, she passed. And Erin and I didn't, we didn't want to spend one second of those final hours calling people or sharing that time with anyone. We didn't get any time with her. This was our time. And so, and there's a reason I'm saying that because it sets it up for how we were treated after. Um, and so uh, then I called Tracy next and let her know. And this was after the 6 a.m. meeting. And I told her that Mia died last night. And, you know, she gave condolences. I don't want to present her as like this heartless person. Like, she, she, you know, she's a person. Um, <clears throat> but it was Kate, my mom came and we had pack up our stuff and leave the hospital and plan a funeral and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And Kate got a call from Tracy or maybe she called Tracy. I don't know which way. And Kate is my sister. Um, basically like demanding, ensuring that she could make sure that we were at the meeting the next morning because we had to be an example to show people that you show up no matter what. Um, even if you're just recovering from surgery, even if your daughter just died. You have to be an example. 
um, to show people that this works. And and I remember Kate asking us, are you guys going to a meeting in the morning? And neither of us were planning to, but we ended up doing it later on. We ended up going to that meeting. I just, that for me was stuck out in my head like nothing else because like the fact that we were doing that, I at, at that point I was like, there's no way. And I wasn't going to be able to change her mind. And to go to that meeting that day and, and like every core, everything in me was like, we should not be here. We I could barely walk. I mean, Rachel could barely walk. She had just had a C-section, but we like, it was like, we made no choice. We had to go. And like, literally the fact that our daughter had died in our arms, not, but you know, less than 48 hours ago. And we walk into this room and sit down and we were in tears. We were in tears the whole entire meeting because of what happened. And I think for me also, I was so angry. I was so angry with the fact that this was happening right now. And we were sitting in this meeting when we should be at home, that my wife should be recovering. And and that was when the anger started to build about all of that. And, you know, we definitely had, there were people that didn't know when we showed up, um, you know, but there was, it was just this sense of like, why are we here? What are we doing here in this place at this point? So later, you know, within days, everything happened very fast around this situation, but um, Tracy made clear to me in some sort of way that a couple of things, one, that it was essentially like horrific on our part to not invite her to the hospital. Um, and she would never, never let that go until the last mm-hmm. time I met with her one-on-one, she, she would not let that go. And she would say, I spent the whole day at the, the zoo when my daughter was in labor Even though she didn't know and her daughter you was couldn't labor. invite me to the hospital, you know, you couldn't invite me to the hospital to meet B while she was alive. Like that was hung mm-hmm. over our head. And that we did it wrong in several ways, the death of our daughter, one of which we didn't go to the meeting the morning she after. So she died at 11 p.m., but we weren't at the meeting right that next morning at 6 a.m. We were, she died on Thursday night. We weren't at the Friday, but we came to the Saturday and all the, the meetings thereafter. Um, and uh, what I never said to her and wish I had was, Oh, sorry. At that time, we would have been commuting back to Bellevue. We were meeting with the the doctor to discuss whether or not our daughter would be buried or whether she would be cremated or whether her body would be studied by science or what we were. I mean, this is, but she doesn't, you know, but we were never asked, like, did you feel like it would be supportive for you to come to the meeting the day after? Well, no, because we were actually meeting with the doctor talking about all these next big decisions. And so it's just like all these kinds of things and uh, that happened. And, and we were ridiculed by Tracy and Dominique later on for crying in the meeting about B. We're, yeah, we, we were, shouldn't have been crying as like we were, um, you know, during the meeting that day. Yeah, because you were supposed to show strength. And unfortunately, that's not the end. The end is is the the worst, in my opinion, which is about two weeks after B died. Um, and this precipitated our next attempt to leave, mm-hmm. I think. Yes. Yeah. Dominique, so that kind of second in power woman, 
I assume at the prodding of Tracy, called me and left me a voicemail and asked me to meet her after the meeting the next day. And I said, yes. And then I called her back because Dominique had done that to me so many times where she had wanted to meet with me. And then she chewed me out for some, something that I did wrong somewhere along the way. And could I understand how many people I hurt? And now I need to make amends to them all and all of this kind of stuff. And so I called her back and I asked her, left her message and said, will you please tell me what you want to meet with me about tomorrow morning? Because I, I wanted to know. And of course she didn't return my call and the broken, beaten person that I was, especially at that moment, you know, two weeks after losing my daughter, met with her and she produced a, a written list of all the things that I had done wrong uh, over the last two weeks in relation to the death of my daughter. And she framed that up by saying that she heard this list or these things in her 11th step. And the 11th step is where you, uh, you know, uh, do prayer and meditation to keep a conscious contact with God. And so what she heard in her 11th step, uh, in her 11th step, well, usually you're supposed to hear your own life in your 11th step, not somebody else's, but um, was all of these things. Cry, me crying at the meeting was one of them. She basically told me to cut that out. Like I needed to, I needed to put the kibosh on the crying. She asked me. He said to me, and I will never forget this, didn't you know that this would be the outcome? As in, didn't you know your daughter dying was going to be the outcome? Insinuating, why are you so upset by it? Uh, where is the humanity? Well, and the, the harder part about that and you know all the things that were said and the fact that this happened was that I didn't know about it. She wouldn't tell me about it. So it was probably almost two weeks. I know. A week. It was, it was. So just to wrap up the Dominique piece, and then we'll go to the telling piece is uh, she also criticized or, uh, you know, made it feel critical that I wasn't um, at the meeting, like the immediate day after, you know, I mean, there was, there was, oh, that we didn't invite her to speak at uh, B's service because I had read a prayer at her husband's service when he died. And so I was, there was supposed to be that reciprocity. And I mean, now it's hard kind of to remember all the things, but there was a solid like 10 things on that list of, of what I had done wrong. But those were the most impactful, the ones I've already shared. I don't think it was a week. I actually think it was within a couple of days that we were walking around. The, yeah, it the could mall. have been, but I definitely noticed. Yeah. I knew that that, that meeting had taken place and I could tell that some, there was a shift, like something was not right. And I could see the torment. And she ended everything by saying, I love you so much. And like, mm. why would I would be, I would have been the best person to help you through this, but you never reached out to me because, you know, I lost my husband and, and why didn't you reach out to me? And, and, uh, and then ended it all with like, I love you. So, you know, framing it up as this, I love you so much. I care about you so much. And that's why I'm having this hard conversation with you. Wow. Okay. Adding insult to injury and more insult, more injury, more insult, more injury. But I say this because I love you. I mean, you know, it's head spinning. First of all, I want to say 
that it's tragic what happened. I think you handled it so beautifully, just going through the process and trying to make it the best for your daughter and for you and to have it make the most sense and to be present and to be mindful of all the steps. And so I, you know, kudos to to both of you just weathering that storm. That is a major turning point because you were left at this precipice. You're filled with emotion needing to be held and instead blamed. You know, I just think that it's really incredibly awful. So what do you have now that you couldn't have had if you were still there? We laugh. I mean, uh, we oh just, God, we laugh so hard. We have fun. And just the, the, the sheer fact that our whole lives aren't consumed with this thing. AA, this sponsorship line, really, I mean, that our whole lives aren't consumed with that. I feel like we spend more time with our family. We get to spend time, you know, just talking. I mean, we talk and talk and we, we've obviously have a lot to talk about after not talking, you know, for seven years. Um, And it's almost like it's a whole, it's been like a whole discovery process Mm -hmm. of, learning who each other was because we had such a short period of time before we jumped into this mess. We we were just saying the other day and we say often, we're like, how did we get through that? And we're still married. We're still happy. Mm-hmm. We're still like growing and, and doing all these amazing things. Like how the hell did we get through that from a marriage perspective? And after seven years, seven years is a long mm-hmm. time. And losing a child and, um, you know, just all of the things that come along with life and to be able to be human, mm-hmm. you know, and have feelings and, and explore, like it, it took us a while to realize that we can disagree about things, mm-hmm. just that we can disagree about things. And we might have a little bit of a heated conversation and we like, that's okay. That's what human people do. That's what. <laughs> Even yeah. <laughs> still today, I think on a daily basis for us, we are able to communicate and explore and, and just be normal. And somebody isn't controlling our lives. We're in control of it. Exactly. Okay. So I, I want to thank both of you. I do hope we have a chance to talk again because, you know, you've been through so much and you're kind of newly out of an experience. And so that's a process and things get kind of uh, revealed and opened up. But I think that you, you're getting to enjoy so much of the gifts of making that change, of making that move, pushing through all the fear that I'm sure was involved in it. And knowing that all the things also that you were warned were going to happen, just finding out day to day that they're not happening and they were never going to happen is so freeing. And I'm so glad you're getting to see that. It was very powerful and very meaningful to talk to both of you. And I'm so happy for the direction that your life is going. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Wow. Just wow. What an incredible experience. What an incredible episode. Thank you to Rachel and to Erin for sharing your story with us and knowing now also that there is going to be a third episode next week. I'm very excited. I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited for people to be able to hear it. 
There is no one who could listen to this episode without being outraged, without being so hurt for you. And I think what is truly incredible is how much you have been able to kind of move beyond this and have a good life and find happiness because that is brutal what you've been through. One of the things that comes up over and over again as they're talking is this is what happens when someone leads a group who makes it about them. They will find every way to make it about them. They were blamed for hurting the leader of their group during the death of their daughter, that she should have been invited to the hospital, and it was about her. Now, this is not unheard of. I mean, unfortunately, some of us have people in our lives who do this sort of thing. I have someone in my life, a distant person in my family who makes everything about her. I will not say her name. And I doubt she listens to the podcast because it's not about her. So I do remember being in the hospital after giving birth to my first child and nursing for the first time in my life and having this moment that I thought, wow, this is kind of incredible. I don't fully know what I'm doing yet, but this is an incredible moment. And the phone rings and I pick it up thinking whoever's calling me at this point must be someone who knows that I had a baby or is going to care about sharing this moment with me. Well, I don't want to be talking on the phone the whole time that I'm doing this for the first time. I'll at least answer, say hi, let them say whatever they wanted to say. And then what will probably happen is I'll let them know that I need to get going. And unfortunately, instead, when I answered the phone, it was this relative who pierced this bubble. It was quiet in my room and it was just this shared moment. And maybe I shouldn't have picked up the phone, but I really wanted to share it with somebody. And I pick up the phone and I start hearing screaming. What the hell is wrong with you? How could you be so selfish? And my heart starts racing. My new baby unlatches because they can feel the tension in my body. And there was an accusation that came, which was I gave birth five days early. And I did that on purpose. Okay. So that this person would not know that I had given birth because she was expecting me to give birth on a certain date. And that I hid it from her so that she wouldn't have time to send a gift on time. And then it was to make her look bad so I could tell the family that she didn't care. And it just went on and on and on until I hung up. And I thought, okay, there are these people. They can't see beyond their own face, their own nose, their own ego, their own needs. They just can't. But what makes it worse, of course, is when this person says, my job is to help you heal. My job is to help you feel good. My job is to help you feel in control of your life. But really, that person's only intention is to see how important they can be to you, how vital how necessary, and how much you can make them feel special, and how much you can remind them that they're important by doing everything they say 
and by thinking about them before you think about anyone else, including your newborn. There is this idea of this whole list of the nevers, the things that you're not allowed to argue about and find fault with and defend, and you can't gossip and you can't explain yourself, all the things that the leader of this particular offshoot had said were the nevers, the forbiddens, the verbotens. But there's this other line that is fascinating to me that I heard during this episode, which is that she said, if it's negative, it's a lie. Well, that's a lie. If it's negative, it's negative. If it's positive, it's positive. Those are either states of being or those are evaluative comments and adjectives. And there is a reason that we are able to ascribe that kind of meaning to things, that maybe it's negative or it's positive, because that means we're using our critical thinking. Yes, there are some people who are just naturally more negative, and that could be because they're more depressive or they're more anxious and they don't think things are going to work out. But it doesn't mean that everything they're saying is a lie. It means that that's from their perspective. And what I think about so many times when I'm faced with a situation like with this relative who called and screamed at me and other situations where I think, oh, there would have been such a good line that I could have used in that moment. But because my adrenaline was rushing through my body and coursing through my, my brain, it shut down the part of my brain that accessed language and reasoning temporarily, which is kind of a drag because you think, oh, that would have been a good thing to say. But I think what happens when somebody says, you know, if it's negative, it's a lie, you want to hear that as, I can't handle if you say something negative about me. If you feel in any way negative about what I'm doing and about me in any way. So I'm going to make sure that that's always seen as a lie. So it's never taken seriously. And then if you feel like the group itself is going to see anything negative as a lie, then it's going to stop you from sharing anything negative. And then you don't get to connect. It goes back to the never list. You can't connect. You can't share with the other person what's really going on, how you're feeling. And you can't hear the other person say, I know. That's exactly my experience too. So I think for... Aaron and for Rachel, finally, what they were able to come to that you're going to hear more about in the third episode is being able to hold back, not talk about the negative, but still start to let it kind of register and grow and start to be more meaningful and that it starts to help them make a decision to leave. And I think about this sort of ideal moment If someone were to say to me, keep coming back to this group, it's the only thing that's going to help you. It's the only thing that is going to keep you alive, keep you on track, keep you sober. And basically, if you share anything negative about it, it's a lie. Then I could see really wishing in that moment to be able to be strong enough to say, oh, actually, what I'm thinking right now isn't negative at all. I'm very positive that this is a lie. I'm very positive that I need to leave. I'm very positive 
that you are toxic. I'm very positive that in this room of people, you are the one who needs the most help. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.